BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Tom Hartman here with you, broadcasting live from my home studio in Portland. On the line with us is our buddy, Professor Richard Wolf. He is an economist. He's the co-founder of democracyatwork.info, the author of numerous books, his most recent, Understanding Socialism. In addition to democracyatwork.info, he also has a website at rdwolf with two fs.com. And uh, you can tweet him at profwolf, P-R-O-F-W-O-L-F-F. Professor Wolf, welcome back. Thank you, Tom. Glad to be here. Thank you for joining us. Don't suppose I need to recap everything that's going on in Washington, D.C. right now. Two trillion dollar stimulus bill, half a trillion of that can be used by the Fed to loan up to four trillion dollars out to American businesses. I'm curious your thoughts on what's going on, where we're at, these unemployment numbers that we just saw, two million unemployed, when it looks like that doesn't even begin to capture things like Uber drivers and gig workers and whatnot. Where are we at? What's going on? Well, I hesitate to give you the honest answer because I know you want it and I'm going to do it. I just hesitate, almost like those uh, programs on regular television that tell you you're about to see something scary or nude or, or something else like that. I can't bring you good news. I just can't. This bill is, for me, a spectacular disappointment. It's too little. It's too late. It does not recognize the systemic roots of this problem. It's going to throw more money, a lot more money, at the economy. It did not learn that that didn't solve our problem back in 2008 and 9. It did not want to recognize that having thrown all that money and cut interest rates to next to nothing into the economy led this economic system to go on a binge of borrowing that the world has never seen before. We have been on the life support of a debt-ridden system on a scale nobody in my profession of economics could have imagined. And what we're doing now is again the same thing. Free money. Here, every business, come, borrow, get yourself through this disaster. We're not changing anything fundamental economically. We're not even learning the lessons of the obvious failure to plan properly to handle a virus pandemic, even though we've had a dozen of them in the last century, some of which were very deadly. I see a society, to be honest, uh, sticking its head in the sand for fear of recognizing that this society needs fundamental economic changes. It has now for a long time, but we're about to go through yet another crisis, not learning the lesson, repeating the mistakes of the past, which set up the next crisis. it's It's very disheartening is the nicest way I can put it. So if you were King, or if you were Steve Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary, or Jay Powell, the head of the Fed, what would you be doing? Well, I can't resist. Mr. Mnuchin went around the country explaining that the economy was in great shape because the unemployment numbers were low. Lots of people pointed out the absurdity of that. Today, he's all over the newspapers having explained to everybody that the now high unemployment rate is, and I quote, irrelevant. It's marvelous. It takes your breath away. Okay, having said that, now to play king. All right, on the virus front, there has to be a government-coordinated plan, because nobody else can do it, in which 
private enterprises, if they are unwilling to produce the beds, the hospitals, the ventilators, the gowns, the test kits, you name it, then the government buys it for them. Either the private sector, driven by profit, or the government, recognizing that a profit system fails, has to accumulate stockpiles. They should have learned it from the pandemic of 1918, the Spanish flu. They didn't. They should have learned it from SARS, MERS, Ebola, and all the others. They didn't. That has to be done because public health is a number one priority. There has to be a Department of Public Health, and it has to have a major commitment to anticipating, planning for, and handling a variety of threats to the public health. This is childish that this has to be said again, but in the face of our catastrophe now, there's no option. As king, that'd be the first thing to do because public health is a higher priority than private profit. Number two, we have to understand that an economic system is judged by how well it organizes the community it is supposed to serve. Virtually everyone, except a handful of folks, understands that extreme inequality has enormously socially disruptive effects. I know there are some of my friends who want to blame Mr. Trump for the divisiveness that racks this country. And sure, he deserves lots of blame. But to blame only him is to miss again. We have redivided the wealth in our country. We have redivided the income over the last 40 years. And it's all been upward, away from the poor, away from the middle, to a very small group at the top. Nothing in the stimulus plan being discussed by the House and Senate addresses that fundamental flaw in our system. And therefore, it does not deal with many of the root causes of what brought us, A, the crisis in 2008, B, the last 10 years of an economy on life support levels of debt, and then C, the lack of preparedness over that time to develop a society capable of handling a serious viral attack. Even after the Chinese, who I know are a, a socialist society in their own eyes, or the South Koreans, who are proudly capitalist, were able to mobilize public and private resources to really attack this virus, and they've done a very good job. We could do that. Americans have every capacity they do, if not more. But our system precluded, prevented, undermined, and slowed something that was driven by time. That has to be faced, and what I see is a government abetted by mainstream media that don't want to look at any of it. The $2 trillion, or however much it takes, that the government now proposes to spend, let me remind you, will be paid for in large part by government debt. And it will encourage our corporate sector, already laden with record levels of debt, to borrow even more. And the amount of money literally crumbs off the table, thrown to average people with a $1,200 check, and even many of them won't get it, is an insult both to our intelligence and to the scope of the problem we face. Wow. You're not holding back here. Final thoughts on this and where are you expected to be heading? Well, I expect us to have to learn this bitter lesson again. As, as I've tried to argue over the last 10 or 12 years, we've had to learn the lesson of 2008. Let me put it this way. You can trickle down, which is what we're doing again, or you can trickle up, which is to help the people at the bottom and put the burden of adjustment on the corporate sector and the business sector to cope, but with a support from below for the mass of people. At the very least, even if it doesn't work, you've helped the majority, which was not what we're doing now. We're helping the minority at the top. For a country that calls itself democratic, that is a bizarre way to undertake economic policy. Amen. Professor Richard Wolf, democracyatwork.info, rdwolf.com with two Fs, Prof Wolf on Twitter. Professor, thank you for dropping by. It's always illuminating. Thank you, Tom. Glad to talk with you, really. Thank you. Thank you very much.
Pramila Jayapal, Representative Pramila Jayapal will be with us. She is the co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. She represents the 7th District of the state of Washington, which is uh, by and large the Seattle area. It's her website, Jayapal, J-A-Y-A-P-A-L.house.gov. And you can tweet her at Rep Jayapal. Representative Jayapal, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Tom. It is so great to be with you, as always. I was just watching Speaker Pelosi on the floor of the House talking about what a crisis time we are. She had her 80th birthday yesterday. She's just indefatigable. She's an extraordinary, extraordinary person and, 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 and representative. Um, I'm curious your thoughts on this moment in history, on what we're all going through, what crisis and, and challenges that you're facing, and then we'll toss it to our callers for, for questions for you. Just on Speaker Pelosi for a minute, she really is extraordinary. We have differences, as you know, and I'm always pushing hard, and she recognizes I'm always pushing hard to go further, bigger, bolder. But she is extraordinary, and we would not have these three packages without her leadership. Here's the thing. I'm here in Seattle, and some of us tried to get on planes yesterday to get to D.C. The planes were canceled, so luckily it will be likely a voice vote and they won't need our votes. Otherwise, we'll have to try to find a way to get to D.C. to vote on the bill. But there is going to be almost unanimous uh, support for the bill in the House. It was unanimous in the Senate. And the reason is because this will be a desperately needed boost for people across the country who are suffering. Here in Seattle, yesterday we reached 147 deaths. We are at Uh, an extraordinary number of unemployment claims across the country that have been filed, millions of unemployment claims, the most unemployment claims ever in the history. And we have this epidemic, this pandemic raging, killing people, you know, putting enormous strain on our hospitals, um, our frontline health workers, as well as all of, I call them first responders, the people that are keeping our grocery stores going, the people that are keeping our buses and public transit going. There's a, still a group of workers that have to be out there working, even as we have stay home, stay healthy orders. So this package is doing several excellent things, which are in there because we pushed very hard for them. Democrats did. The initial bill that was introduced by Republicans in the Senate by Mitch McConnell was a non-starter. And we put a lot of good things in there, which I will go through. But it also has things that we don't like, including half a trillion dollars in money for industry assistance that essentially Mnuchin will have the vast majority of control over. We did manage to get some oversight in there, but that is sort of another slush fund for Steve Mnuchin, and that's nothing that any of us want. The rest of the bill, however, $1.5 trillion, we feel like we have done some phenomenal things. We have, this will move forward, the biggest expansion of unemployment insurance in decades. So we will enhance unemployment with federal benefits of $600 a week so that the average laid-off worker is going to receive 100% of their paycheck in benefits. And it also gets rid of all the waiting periods and extends the number of weeks that federally funded unemployment insurance will actually be available. It also creates a new program for gig workers, temporary workers to be able to apply, people who didn't typically qualify. And it expands work sharing programs, which my co-chair, Mark Pocan, who I know is on your show regularly, has been such a champion of, which allows people to stay on payroll, right? Because at the end of the day, we would rather have people stay on payroll then have to file for unemployment and then have to reapply for a job. It also has a big component of direct payments. We, the Congressional Progressive Caucus, had put out a set of principles, 12 things in our direct payment. We were calling for 2000 in direct assistance per month, plus $1,000 per child per month for up to six months, renewable for another six months. This is a one-time payment. It's $1,200 in direct assistance and $500 per child. There is an income cap and a phase-out above a certain amount of money, but it will at least provide, it's insufficient, but it will at least provide something immediately. And then we can go through some of these other things, small business grants and aid, 
and this is for nonprofits and small businesses, this is really, really important. And it is $350 billion in loan forgiveness grants if those small businesses keep their payrolls, their health care benefits. They can also use it to pay rent, utilities, all of those things. That is going to be very important, as well as another $10 billion in small business emergency grants. And then there's a whole bunch of money, $150 billion, but not nearly enough as I look at what's happening here in Washington State to our health care system. This is $150 billion for our health care system. We also have a significant plus-up of money for community health centers and frontline providers, and we increase the amount that is in the national emergency stockpile, which you and I have spoken so much about what happens when the federal government disinvests in everything, in state government, but also in things like the, the strategic national stockpile. We essentially reverse that here, and hopefully it's not too late. Um, one of the big areas that we did get in to the airline assistance in particular is trying to make the industry assistance worker-centered. So rather than a corporate bailout, we want any money that's going to go to these industries to go to payroll, to go to benefits, to keeping people on those payrolls, and also to prohibiting a lot of the things that we saw in 2008 um, that corporations did, uh, which was, you know, things like putting the money to stock buybacks or dividends, um, increasing executive compensation, those kinds of things. There are some very good provisions on the airline package, thanks to Pete DeFazio, who was one of the original co-founders of the Congressional Progressive Caucus and is the chair of the Transportation Committee now. They're not nearly as strong as we want, and they don't necessarily apply to the rest of that big Mnuchin slush fund. So there's a lot of uh, good things in here, but I would say that there are some places where we were not able to get things that we wanted, and I'm particularly concerned about the immigrants that are excluded from any kinds of benefits and a few other things. Thank you for that summary. It's a great roundup. Representative Pramila Jayapal is with us, representing uh, the Seattle area the Was of Washington State in the U.S. House of Representatives. She is the co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. Jayapal, J-A-Y-A-P-A-L dot house dot gov is her website. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And you can tweet her at Rep Jayapal. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. 
You're listening to Tom Hartman. Josh in Boulder, Colorado. Josh, you're on the air with Representative Jayapal. Hello, Representative Jayapal. COVID-19 likely originated from a wet market in China that sells live and dead animals. There are over 80 live animal markets and slaughterhouses operating in New York City alone. Maybe if we have social distancing measures for farm animals instead of cram factory farm operations to maximize profit, we can hope to prevent some of these viruses in the future. Will you sponsor legislation to end all live animal markets and factory farms operating in the United States? Well, I'm certainly happy to look at that. I have been uh, I've been a big supporter of many things related to that, but I would want to look at that. I, I think that, you know, the thing is here that we are we are seeing viruses rage across the world. No attention to borders, no attention to citizenship, no attention to income. This is affecting everybody. And we have to learn from this and figure out how we how we address it for the long term. China has cracked down on these on these so-called wet markets. These are the wild animal markets. And that's where MERS apparently came from. It's where SARS certainly came from. Uh, it's where this coronavirus apparently came from. I get it that that's kind of a different thing from slaughterhouses. I'm not a fan of slaughterhouses or factory farming, but you know the public health consequences of those seem to be limited to food poisoning. Um, but Gene in Gurneyville, California. Gene, you're on the air with Representative Jayapal. My question is regarding the the digital currency that the new bill creates. Tom has mentioned that we're going to need like ten trillion dollars rather than you know this is a, a beginning, and you kind of allude to that. This is two trillion. So we're going to be right back later on. I work in food service, and I'm, I'm pretty scared right now, but I, I trust you guys. Thanks, Gene. And you're absolutely right. The accountability is key here, and we learned that in 2008. That is what I was referring to, that I don't think the accountability is strong enough for the Treasury money. So that half a trillion dollars that I mentioned initially started out as a slush fund for Mnuchin to do whatever he wanted with it. We have now put at least an oversight panel in there. Um, We are trying to strengthen the actual language around um, authority and not just transparency. So we don't just want them to tell us what they did. I mean, that's sort of what the oversight panel in in 2008 with the TARP bailout was um, structured as, because that was immediate money into the markets. It happened kind of, you know, very quickly. And then we were like, okay, we, now we need to know what happened. This is not that situation. We can condition aid to industries on the things that we want to see. And so um, I did, you know, I mentioned we got some conditions into the airline package, but the rest of the money that Mnuchin has control over, we need to get a lot more accountability into it. And then I'll just say, I completely agree with you. You know, this sounds like a lot, and it is a lot, given what we, you know, have not done in the past um, and what we need to do. But it's, it's really, I think, a very small piece of the total amount of money that we need to do. And remember, this comes, this is the third package. So we've now done two major packages. This one is, of course, of a different scale, and we are going to come back with a fourth package. We're already working on those priorities. Now, Gene suggested that, that this bill authorizes uh, digital currencies. Was he talking about cryptocurrencies? I, I don't think that, that it does Because I've not heard I, of I that. Think what we, I think what it does is going to require the country to come up with money, right, which, we, which we're going right. to have to, we're, we're essentially going to have to create. Len in Silva, North Carolina. You're on the air with uh, Representative Jaipal. I'm concerned. Uh, my wife and I uh, have not uh, filed tax returns for several years because we're below the the standard deduction. And what I'm trying to find out is, uh, are we in line to get the get a thousand dollar check? Yes, you are. Thank you for asking that. So. The way this works is that if you have a Social Security number, um, then you will be eligible to get the $1,200 per adult check, um, $500 if you have dependent children. 
Um, it will be faster if you are a taxpayer and if you have direct deposit because the IRS will just be able to cut those checks and immediately get them into your bank accounts. Um, they have to import the information from the Social Security Administration for uh, people who are, for example, on SSI um, and other things, and so who, who haven't filed taxes but do have a Social Security number. So it may take a little bit longer. We understand that there is a form that you would just fill out and we will get the details. As soon as we get the details of that, obviously, we'll put that all out. But you absolutely do qualify for the check as long as, um, well, and, and you said you're on, uh, you're on SSI. So you would absolutely qualify. Cool. There is a... Steve in Seattle. Um, sorry. Oh, hi, is this me? For other people... Oh, hang on. Hang on, Steve. Yeah, go ahead. For, for, just for other people who are listening, the cap on the income is 75 excuse me 75,000 per individual 150,000 per uh, married couple and then 112,500 for a single head of household that is adjusted gross income and it phases out um, after those amounts so you get um, you essentially start to phase out and it, it, it's I think it's for every hundred dollars above the phase out, the rebate is reduced by five dollars, something like that. Cool. Steve in Seattle, you're on the air with Representative Jaipal. What I wanted to talk about was something I would like to see in a fourth relief package from Congress, which would be um, essentially a small life insurance payout for people who die from this virus. Because I'm certain that there's going to be a lot of times where someone dies and they're going to be one of the primary breadwinners in their family, maybe the sole breadwinner. And I just want to make sure some of these families are going to get the help they need. Yeah, thanks. That's. I mean, I think that the devastation is going to be enormous. And not only should we look at life insurance for people who don't have life insurance policies, but also, frankly, healthcare. I mean, one of the things we fought for, and Tom, you know, I am the lead sponsor of Medicare for All. I've been pushing for a single payer system. Um, we are going to see a whole heck of a lot of hurt around the cost of treatment um, and all of the delays for other healthcare that are going to happen because these the hospital systems and the healthcare systems are overloaded. So we tried to get free treatment into this bill. In fact, it's in our House bill that we dropped. Um, but the Republicans would not would not have it. And um, I think that this question of both how we handle folks who have suffered, you know, fatalities out of this, um, as well as people who are um, who are dealing with all the health care costs that they're going to have associated with this. So you can imagine somebody who did not end up making it, who died, but then their family gets a huge bill for their time in the hospital. That would just be so unacceptable. So we are, we are trying to work on all of those issues for this next package. Good. Christine in Denver, Colorado, you're on the air with uh, Representative Pramila Jaipal. As individual people sitting here in our individual states, what we can do to push this Defense Act, if anything. I'm so appalled and I feel so frustrated. And I don't know what we can do other than call our senators. Do you have anything concrete that we might do on a daily basis? To kind of move, this. I think, I think it is um, it, it is calling your senators, but it's really calling out Trump. Look, the federal government has put some tools in place for the president to use in a crisis like this, and the fact that he has denied this um, for uh, for way too long, he's now saying it's not an issue. Um, you know that he doesn't need the Defense Production Act. Sometimes he says he's in, invoked it. Sometimes he says he hasn't. Um, he is now saying we don't need ventilators. Why do we need so many ventilators? It is absolutely criminal. And uh, he is literally people are dying because of his both inaction and his falsehood. So he could he could put the Defense Production Act to use. And for those who are listening who don't know, this is the ability to stimulate the supply, the production and the distribution of um, essential materials that are needed. It's usually used in wartime, but this is a disaster of epic pro proportions. We we are in a way at war with this virus. And so he could convert our current manufacturing capabilities into ensuring that we have the supply, the domestic supply and production 
and distribution of all these things instead of the current situation where we don't have enough of things. We're importing things from all over the world because we no longer manufacture them on U.S. soil. And he is allowing states to fight with each other over the price of these things so that the ventilators, the scarce ventilators, go to the highest bidders. That's just unacceptable, Christine. I'm, I'm, uh, I think we just have to continue to, to raise, the, raise the alarm, raise the roof not only with your senators and representatives, but also directly aimed at Donald Trump. Yeah, now we're learning that uh, states aren't just bidding against each other, they're bidding against the federal government. I mean, the, the libertarians have to be ecstatic. This is obscene. Yeah. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Representative Jayapal, the, uh, the House just voted and passed this uh, CARES Act, I think they're calling it. Thomas Massey, I believe his name is, the, the, the right-wing Republican, the libertarian Republican who, who forced everybody, 216 people, into the House chamber, kind of went down in flames. So I guess that's good news. Yeah, it was. Um, it, it's really outrageous that he did that, but he insisted, and so that meant we had to have a quorum call, which meant 50 plus one of our members, that was 216 people, had to be there to fight his uh, his request for a recorded vote so that the rest of the chamber would not have to fly in from all over the country. Yeah, yeah, this is this is uh, just obscene. Tremendous so, selfishness, honestly, Tom. It was it was a lot of selfishness. Yeah. And look, this is I mentioned at the very beginning, and I was actually just reading again parts of the bill, particularly those related to the the what I call the the Mnuchin slush fund. Um, and it's it's criminal that we would be put in this position of holding up aid for, you know, having to choose between getting aid to families who desperately need it and then giving him the slush fund. I don't think these oversight provisions are strong enough at all. And we're going to have to figure out how to fix them. But at least we are going to get one point five trillion dollars in aid. Um, but all the things you talk about on your website about you know, how corporations should be getting in line behind everybody else. That's exactly right. Mm -hmm. And um, we do a lot of that in the bill here, but unfortunately, not everything we needed to. Yeah, there you go. Okay, well, let's pick up phone calls here. Paul in Woodenville, Washington. You're on the air with Representative Jayapal. Well, yeah, thank you. My my question is uh, regarding uh, what Representative Jayapal had talked about, the the states competing against one another for uh, ventilators, supplies of all kinds. Uh, that the Trump administration has put us in this uh, almost pre-constitutional, not yet a nation, Articles of Confederation situation where the, the, the colonies did compete against one another, and that's why we became a nation, which we apparently are not now. But the problem is, when you have the states competing against one another, uh, there are winners and losers. And especially when you have, like in nature, and nature's involved here, I'm concerned and wondering if it's not possible that some of these states, uh, the Deep South uh, Gulf Coast states, Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, who have not put in these stay-at-home orders, and they are very economically, let's say, not capable, they could be overrun in a matter of weeks, uh, their health care systems, and economically flattened into failed states. I mean, literally failed, crash-failed states. What about that? What do we do then? Well, this is a really important issue, Paul, because I just looked at the latest numbers. I follow this um, economic modeling on the coronavirus that's being done um, by statisticians across the country. And what they're seeing is 32 percent increases in the South. You know, if you look at regions and you take New York out, you take Washington um, out um, and you separate out California because there are three big epicenters. What they're seeing is this tremendous, tremendous increase in cases in these states where a couple things, you have Republican governors who refuse to expand Medicaid, who don't have any health care system that is, you know, don't have enough of a health care system that's functioning, who already have very bad um, 
mortality and morbidity rates and big healthcare issues because they don't have that care there um, and have low income. So, you know, you have this this increase in these states where they, they were listening to the president for the first several weeks where he kept insisting that there wasn't anything happening. And they're probably still listening to him now when he says he wants to get the country, you know, back to work by Easter because he wants to see the churches filled. I mean, it is it is absolutely outrageous. And I worry about those states as well. Um, we do have money in here for the states. But remember, if there's a Republican governor and, you know, in some cases, the money is not conditioned in particular ways because most states really need flexibility in these funds. But that means that some governors also have flexibility to not use the funds in the ways that we want. So I'm worried about that, too. We're watching that. I think you're going to see a giant increase in cases and fatalities and an overwhelm of those healthcare systems, the ones that they have in those states. I think we're all getting a crash course in what Reaganomics does to a nation during a time of crisis. It's, it's terrible <laughs> That's stuff. Right. That's Nancy right. Nancy in Woodland, California, listening to uh, 910 AM out of San Francisco. You're on the air with Representative Pramila Jayapal. Hi. Um, yeah, I have a question about the uh, media. I heard that Trump had threatened to pull FCC licenses for media that run ads that he doesn't like, even though they're, they're factual. And I'm just wondering, if he tries to do that, is there anything Congress can do to prevent him or to reverse it or whatever? I don't think he has the ability to do that on his own. I know that has come up because he is protesting right now an ad, I think that was done by Priorities USA, that Mm -hmm. um, is essentially an ad that um, has his quotes around coronavirus, and it simultaneously shows a graph of the cases continuing to increase and, and you know, surge, um, even as he's saying all these things that are completely untruthful about how there's no problem. And I believe that he is filing a lawsuit against them to try to get that off the air. I'm, I'm not convinced that I'm absolutely 100% right on that, but I just saw something cross my desk. His campaign sent a letter to television stations all across the country telling them that the FCC would pull their license if they didn't pull the ad. That's it. That's it. Right. So it's it's unclear to me that he has the power to do that as a president, but obviously, you know, he's going to fight this, right? And he's going to make people fight it. And and he's being a bully. This is what he does. He bullies and he hopes that people will stand down. Yeah. And uh, last night he was trashing Governor uh, uh, Gretchen Whitmer of Michigan on Sean Hannity's show. Yeah. She just uh, she just noted on a Detroit radio station this morning that uh, she is being told by suppliers of equipment that they have been told not to sell to Michigan. I mean, that's what's going on right now. It's it's breathtaking. Yeah. Now that this bill has been passed by the House, is you think Trump's going to sign it and it's going to go into effect real fast? Yeah, Trump will sign it for sure, and it will go into effect. Maybe when we come back, Tom, we can talk about the tension between using existing systems to get money out immediately and the challenge with all the people that are left out of those existing systems. And welcome back. Uh, Jeff in San Francisco. Hey, Jeff, you're on the air with Representative Jayapal. Yeah, I was wondering, um, you know, if you have an extra tree and a half to print up to pay off all the student loan debt. If not, <laughs> if there's any relief at all going to come for uh, those that's been carrying student debt for years and even lowering the interest rate to like 1%, like we're doing for some of these uh, corporations, would be kind of nice because I've been paying 8%. Yeah. And, and I cannot refinance this thing, and I've tried thousands of times to say, no, you don't make enough. And it's like my wife and I went out and got PhDs and, and teacher credentials and master's degrees, and my son's in college now, and we're still paying on this. And it's it's just this neck thing around our neck, and there's we have trillions of dollars for corporations in the stock market. We don't have a trillion and a half for these, you know, we kind of we played the game right. And Jeff, let's 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 let uh, Representative yeah, Jayapal answer yeah, your question. Ahead. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Jeff. Um, we fought for that in the bill. We called for 
um, forgiveness of uh, substantial portions of student loan debt. Because what we see over and over again is it's not that we don't have money. Um, We don't suffer from scarcity in the United States. We suffer from greed. And the reality is that we could have taken on, and I have a bill called College for All, that, um, that would provide free tuition. Ilhan Omar, my colleague, uh, has a bill to cancel all debt, and we believe it would boost the economy um, and give us resources across the economy. So the bill, just to answer your question, it does provide fourteen and a quarter billion dollars for higher education emergency relief. Um, it is it basically says it includes protections for student borrowers by suspending the need to make payments through September 30th, 2020. And during that time, interest will not accrue. So you don't have to make payments during this time and you won't get more interest. But what we believe should have happened is we should actually forgive those payments. I mean, I actually think debt cancellation is smart for the economy and absolutely the right thing to do um, to actually give people hope and opportunity uh, in a deeply inequitable system. When you look at the investment of the GI Bill, for every dollar that we spent sending those young people to college back in the in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, for every dollar that we spent doing that, we got seven to ten dollars in additional tax revenue that the government would not have otherwise had throughout their working lifetimes because they had higher incomes. I mean, it's just an investment in our intellectual infrastructure, isn't it? So exactly, uh, no, exactly. Do you see that coming? Well, I think that we are putting our foot in the door for some of these bigger changes, universal health care, universal education access. I mean, we are showing that this is what happens when we don't invest. And we have a country where 60 percent of Americans don't even have $400 in their bank account. And we have these enormously stagnating wages and huge increase in costs. That's just not tolerable anymore. So I think we're getting our foot in the door. And I do believe we've taken big steps. Um, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren's uh, campaigns have have you know pushed these ideas, but we we still have work to do because we gotta we gotta change the makeup of Congress and get lobbyists yeah. out of the Capitol so that we can actually make government work for people again. Welcome back. Ten minutes before the hour, uh, Representative Jayapal. In the last segment, you had uh, asked me to remind you to speak of the difference between how we get money to people who are basically part of the normal economy versus people who maybe function somewhat outside of the uh, quote normal economy. I'm assuming you're talking about like gig workers and and uh, people who are undocumented stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. Because obviously in an emergency, the quickest thing to do is try to use the systems we have and expand them as much as possible, right? Like if we can take unemployment insurance and expand it dramatically, um, we will cover a lot more people than we do right now. We have to do that. But we are still leaving out a lot of people. Um, You know, I'll just give you an example. If you are an undocumented farm worker and you're putting food on the table that we desperately need in our food banks and on our tables right now, you are getting nothing from this package. You're not eligible for the cash benefit. You're not eligible for um, any of the unemployment insurance. You are are really left out completely. Um, A lot of gig workers... We have tried to create ways that they can that they can get benefits, and we'll see how well we did with that. Um, but we need to make sure that uh, you know, as we do this, we don't assume we're taking care of everybody because we're really leaving out a lot of people just using the systems we have with the restrictions we have. Tried to take away some of those restrictions, but on political issues or issues that have become political, I should say, like immigration, unfortunately, we're just continuing despite the fact that if we don't allow everybody to get tested, regardless of citizenship, that's hurting the public health of everyone. Jane in Seattle, you're on uh, on the air with probably your representative. Trump's announcement that he's no longer enforcing any of the environmental protection laws from the EPA, is that not an impeachable offense? Oh, Jane, um, you know I'm on the Judiciary Committee, and you know that we voted in the House to impeach the president, um, not on this, but on a couple of other charges. I believe there are probably more that he can and should be impeached on, but um, that in and of itself may not constitute an impeachable offense. It depends on what exactly he's doing. So 
Um, there are lots of ways in which he is circumventing the Constitution and most importantly, circumventing the balance of powers. And so those are the things that, um, you know, that he would potentially be impeached on. Uh, but impeachment is a is a it is a political process in the sense that the Senate has to vote on it, and the Senate refused to convict um, and remove even on things that seemed so incredibly clear a- around election interference and um, Donald Trump requesting the assistance of foreign governments to interfere in our elections. So. Um, unfortunately, I, I don't know that impeachment uh, is the way that this president is going to leave. I think it's going to be through ensuring fair and free elections and, and voting him out. Yeah. And that's my biggest concern is that you're going to have a bunch of Republican controlled states that are going to say we can't submit a, a firm electoral college ballot. And that will throw the vote to the to the House under uh, the 12th Amendment. And each state gets one vote, and there's a majority of Republican states, so Trump gets reelected. I'm very concerned about that. Uh, Representative Jayapal, I'm sorry, but there's not enough time for you to respond to that. We're out of time. But thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Tom. Thanks for everything you always do. You're listening. Thank you. It's great talking with you. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. Boy, what a day, huh? What a day. Mark in Long Beach, California. Hey, Mark, what's up? It's kind of a silver lining here. The uh, people who get the disease and get through it are basically immune. And if they are trained in their quarantine period in the sanitation area, they could be administering the tests when mm-hmm. the kits become available. And Yeah, I've, I've, a, I've been talking about this oh, for, for a couple of weeks, Mark, that there's going to be a lot of demand for labor right now. Amazon is hiring people. Uh, the grocery stores are hiring people. Pretty soon there are going to be people who are able to prove that they have the immune antibodies, that they had the coronavirus and either had symptoms or not, but that they had it and they're better. It's going to take a serological test, a, t- a test that actually measures the antibodies floating around in the serum in the blood. And that is available now, apparently, but it's only minimally available. But that is, the, I think you're right. And like I said, I've been saying this for a couple of weeks. This is going to be the new kind of category. And there's critical infrastructure, too. You know, the, the, the people who, who, you know, the, the line people who maintain our electric infrastructure, the pipeline people who maintain our water and septic, the, the garbage guys who pick up your trash, all of these critical infrastructure jobs, they're going to be people who are on the other side of this. That's sort of the upside of it. Uh, you know, the downside is that it's 15 to 20 times more more lethal than, than the flu. I mean, that's that's the downside. Eric in Charlotte, North Carolina. Hey, Eric, thanks for watching us on YouTube. What's up? I thought we'd look into the future a little bit, and I just wanted to get your perspective on where do you think progressives should be going forward, in my opinion, and you can feel free to disagree. I don't. It's looking like Biden's the presumptive nominee. I don't think he will be able to beat Trump in the general. The only hope he has is that I think the economy is just in such a bad shape that maybe that will turn out for his favor. But assuming Trump gets another four years, what do you think progressives need to do in 2024? Because the way they coalesced around Biden right before Super Tuesday was unprecedented. And, and I feel like the establishment would do the same thing in 2024 against AOC or somebody else who were to run because I don't think Bernie will run against and I just wanted to yeah, get your I, idea what do you think I'm, I'm not sure that that's do? so much the case my take on what happened was that Bernie had a couple of weeks there where he was way out in the lead and mm-hmm. at that point in time if he had embraced the Democratic Party establishment and said I look forward to working with my colleagues and things like that if he had embraced the media at that point he would be the nominee right now but instead, he continued to attack the party establishment, and he continued to attack the media. He went on Rachel Maddow's show, for example, and attacked both. And this was when he was at the peak. So I think that that did him a lot of harm. And, and I think that that was the point at which somebody, and I'm assuming it was probably Obama, but some party elder made the mm-hmm. phone call to Buttigieg and Klobuchar and said, you guys are going to drop out, and we're going to push Joe through. But, you know, I don't think that Joe Biden can't beat Trump. I think particularly given how he's bungled the response to this virus and how the economy has gone down in flames, I think Joe Biden can easily beat Trump. I do believe, Eric, that the focus that progressives need to have, and they need to have it, you know, sharp and and to the point right now, 
is now is the time to push back on Ronald Reagan's inaugural address in 1981 when Ronald Reagan got up there and he said, government is not the solution to your problems. Government is the problem or words to that effect. When he said that, he kicked off 40 years of libertarian economics and we are now living the result of it. And this crisis that we're experiencing shows us that government can actually be the solution to our problems when it's run effectively by people who believe in government. But when you put fools in charge, like Donald Trump and the, and the, and the suck-ups who surround him, when you put these fools in charge and they believe the government doesn't have any legitimate role, and, uh, I mean, Trump just, just pulled the plug on the EPA, or actually the EPA administrator, uh, Wheeler is his name, he's a coal lobbyist. He just issued new rules for the EPA saying that any company out there that has, you know, uh, a couple of hundred tons of toxic waste loaded up in a storage tank, and if you're never next to a river, uh, you can just open the valve right now. No problem. We're not going to enforce any more rules on pollution until this crisis is over. And so I predict that we're going to start hearing stories in a week or two about entire towns that are being wiped out, you know, Flint, Michigan kind of circumstances where our rivers just get flooded with poison, where we're going to find, you know, communities downwind of the refineries in Texas and Louisiana being poisoned by benzene and, and, and other toxic byproducts. You're going to see all this poison coming out as these guys are figuring, hey, you know, some of these products, you have to pay $1,000 a pound to dispose of them in these high temperature disposal units. And now the EPA says, hey, you can just dump it in the river. Cool. I mean, when you've got fools like that running your government, you're going to have a disaster. And sure enough, we have one. But, you know, there are enough of us who remember when government actually worked. And we can look around the world at other countries where government actually works and say, no, don't want to do it this way. Don't want to be stupid. We'll follow Norway's lead, you know, rather than Trump's. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Mike in Lameda, California. Hey, Mike, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom, I just wanted to talk about the looming shortage of life support equipment and uh, throw some cold water on the idea I heard expressed earlier that ventilators are just a simple little gadget that'll be easy to make. Two examples. Uh, once I was in charge of respiration for a pediatric patient, being transported 86 miles from the high desert to a seaside trauma center. And the attending physician had just bought this new transport ventilator, which he really, really wanted us to use. However, every time we attached it to the patient, the kid went crazy. We had to scrape him off the ceiling of the ambulance because the machine, which I'm sure would be very good for ventilating other machines, was not dealing very well with a live animal. So the idea that some little mechanical gadget is going to enhance the survival prospects of people who are intubated is perhaps a little simple-minded. That said, one of the things uh, Governor Cuomo said is that they're splitting their ventilators, that they're able to use one ventilator with two people because basically it's just blowing air out. Uh, do I have that right? Well, it's actually uh, a lot more complicated than... Yesterday. Basically, this is when you're just sort of giving up on the idea of trying to individually uh, assure a patient's survival. Right. The other example, right. though, is an older style ventilator we used to have in use, which uh, was put in use on a ward patient and came around in the morning and there was a patient dead in the bed. But the ventilator was mm -hmm. fine. It kept puffing right away. So right. I think we need something a little more in the modern era than uh, some simple uh, tool designer's idea of what constitutes a ventilator. By the way, in Britain, to show you what can happen in a country that has not been made great again, mm -hmm. the government got together a few industrial firms, Rolls-Royce among them, since they're not making that many jet engines now, and they are coming up with mass production of ventilators, which prototype will be out the end of the week, and they expect to have thousands of them rolling off the line in about five weeks. Why we're not wow. doing it here? Why didn't we start doing that in January or even in December when we knew that this was coming? When we knew. I mean, right. Yeah. It's like, you know, Trump sat on this thing for two and a half months and possibly longer. I mean, what we're hearing is our spy agencies knew what was going on in December, early December, coming out of Wuhan. I mean, we have very, very effective spy agencies. It's just breathtaking. Thank you, Mike. Heather in Seattle. Hey, Heather, thanks for listening to KBCS. What's up? 
I just want to share with everybody how deadly this virus is. Last night I got a call that the third person I know has passed away from this. And what I want to tell people is to take this seriously because our government isn't. Our government has left us on our own. Heather, I'm so sorry. I want to to tell people to prepare. I want to tell people to take care of each other. And I want to tell, especially the states that are not getting any sort of assistance, that please reach out to your neighbors and to your friends and beg them to be careful. Heather, thank you for the call. A hollowed-out Trump administration was not ready, and now it's shopping for medical supplies on Amazon. Honest to God, this is the Department of Homeland Security. At the Department of Homeland Security, there are 75 top jobs vacant or acting. At the Defense Department, it's 21 of the top 60 civilian positions. At the Department of Veterans Affairs, does not have a second-in-command or a head of emergency preparedness. The IRS is seriously understaffed. But here's where it gets bizarre. At the Department of Veterans Affairs, workers are scrambling to order medical supplies on Amazon after the department's leaders lacking experience in disaster response. Because, of course, Trump hired lobbyists and fools, you know, Republicans, failed to prepare for the onslaught of patients at the veterans' medical centers. The Veterans Administration is literally going online to Amazon to try to buy stuff for this pandemic. I mean, that's how bad it is. Lisa in Niles, Ohio. Hey, Lisa, what's on your mind today? Number one, I'd like to push back about Elizabeth Warren and her input onto these bills. In my opinion, I saw her points laid out specifically on Twitter. She has had a lot of pushback on that slush fund. And in my opinion, if not for her, we might not have any oversight at all. You're absolutely right. Elizabeth Warren was one of the major forces in, in the Senate in making this bill better. Both yeah. her and Bernie Sanders, uh, point, they, they, they applied yeah. a lot of pressure to the Democratic leadership. I agree. I worked 17 years as a nurse. Our healthcare workers, they are human. What's happening is they have the brunt of keeping up the health of the country. They have no federal support. They have limited supplies. And you're starting to see the flawed humanity coming out. They can only yeah. take so much. If we don't give them support, Tom, what's going to happen when they lose their stamina, when they lose their well, will? And, and um, across we need the to country, support them in every way. Yes, That's what I'm we saying. Absolutely do. We absolutely do. Lisa. Um, yep, I'm with you. Lisa, thank you. It's very well said. Joe in Brooklyn, New York. Hey, Joe, what's on your mind? Hey, I wanted to know, could the world be involved in a civilization recess? It's very interesting how we are well prepared to work remotely and the media is now asking if companies will have people working from home moving forward right you know it's possible joe and and i think that there are a number of probably permanent cultural changes that are going to come out of this virus even if we develop herd immunity and or a vaccine or both uh, over the next you know 12 18 months something like that i think that there's going to be a lot of changes and probably a lot of actually very good changes that are going to come out of this. You know, the sad thing is that it's going to come at the cost of probably millions of people around the world dying and perhaps even millions of people in the United States. I mean, that's how bad it could get. But yeah, I I said the other day, I think that a lot lot of companies, you know, Jared Kushner bought that giant office building in New York, probably 10, 20, 30 percent of the people of the companies that have offices there felt like they had to have an office. But they're discovering that they don't need to have an office. Uh, You know, I think that you're going to see office rents going down because people are figuring out, hey, you know, employers are figuring out my people can work from home. So we're going to see more of that. Also, if you go back and look at one of the major cultural turning points in European history, it was right after the Black Plague in Europe. And I think it was in the 1320s or the 1340s, whenever it was, the generation after the Black Plague killed off a third of Europe. Now, this is nothing close to that. Uh, you know, this is killing off, you know, between one and four percent of, of, of infected people. Um, so, you know, yeah. half to one percent of the population. But after the Black Plague did that, that brought the Renaissance. It totally changed Europe. It, it changed the business profile. It changed the cultural profile. So, yeah, 
Joe, I got to run, but thank you for the call. Melody in Parkville, Maryland. Hey, Melody, thanks for watching us on YouTube. Hey, Tom. With respect to killing old people and enable to help the economy, my thought is mm -hmm. that if enough people in Congress die, enough older folks, and there are plenty of them to go around, it's not going to mm -hmm. be conservatives replacing them. We have a younger society that is not afraid of socialism, and I could see that kicking them in the butt really fast. Yeah, so what you're saying is if the Republicans take their own advice and get themselves infected and die for the economy, that it might right. not work out quite like they think. Yeah. Thank you, Melody. Chris in Running Springs, California. Hey, Chris, thanks for listening to SiriusXM. We yes. have just a minute to go. Mail-in ballots, how difficult a procedure is that statewide? How costly is it? It sounded to me like it wasn't a ton of money, but they were making a big deal about it in this bill. Right. Ron Wyden calculated the cost nationwide to be $500 million. There's already six states that pretty much do entirely vote by mail. Here in Oregon, the Washington state north of us, there's literally no place to go to vote. You have to vote by mail. If we were to do that, 500 million bucks, and Ron Wyden and Earl Blumenauer put forward legislation that would provide that money to the states. The problem is you've got 17 states where you need a doctor's slip or an excuse in order to get a mail-in ballot. And so those states would have to change their rules or the federal government would have to override them. And that's what everybody's working toward. We do not want to postpone these elections. The will of the people needs to be heard now more than ever before. But the only way it can safely be heard is by mail. And these red states that are fighting this, I think that they're hoping that they can use this crisis to mess with our elections, frankly. I mean, this is the only way Republicans can stay in power, is by fraud, as we've discussed many times. So anyway, thank you so much for being with us today. We will be back, same bat time, same bat place. In the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. Get out there, get active, tag, you're it. Don't get out there, but you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Share things with your friends via email. You've been we'll listening see you to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.